Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the many blessings that you provided to us, Lord. We, we thank you for the beautiful day. Lord, most of all, we thank you for these children and for the gifts that they've used, Lord, to worship you today. Lord, what, a, what an amazing example, Lord. We just pray that as we worship you and as we go out into our community, Lord, we just pray that we will bless you with the same gusto that these, that these children have and that, um, Lord, that we can open our hearts to others. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with Pastor Don today as he provides uh, your message. We pray, Lord, that you'll open our hearts. Help us, Lord, to learn the message, Lord, that you have for us. We just thank you once again, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's reading is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Good morning. I want to say thanks to the kids. I, I probably a lot of them have gone back to children's church or whatever, to, to Sherry and just our children and you parents for letting your kids. What a blessing that was a little a few minutes ago with that presentation. And they were really singing out. They really were. It was, it was, oh, yeah. 
some, sometimes when you're a little like that, you're a little shy, but these guys did great this week, so thank you so much, you guys. Um, I wanted to, before we get into the Word, we'll get right into it in just a moment, but before we do, I just wanted to make sure folks know what we're planning for Christmas weekend. That's two, two weeks from today. Um, and so the way we're, and this will be in the bulletin next week, and I think we've sent it out in some other ways too, but um, we're approaching, because Christmas falls on a Sunday this year, we're kind of approaching it as a weekend. And so we're, we're not doing a separate Christmas Eve service. We're basically offering a Christmas service that will be offered on Christmas Eve and then again on Christmas morning. And so um, the times are actually the same as what we've done in, in recent years. And so they're on Christmas Eve, there will be a service here at the church at 5 o'clock. And on Christmas Day, the Sunday, there will be a service here at the church at 10.30 a.m. And those two service will, services will be mostly the same. Um, there will be some differences. I think we're planning to still sing Silent Night at the Christmas Eve service, the one on Christmas Eve, and we probably won't sing it on, on Sunday morning. Uh, we'll do a different song that day, but, but the sermons will be mostly the same message. They never come out the same twice, but um, mostly the same message, mostly the same music and worship teams and all the rest. And so you are very welcome to join us for both of those services. Some people are like, I want to be here for both. Please join us for both. Um, I'll be here for both. Andrew will be here for both. So uh, we'd love to, love to have you here for both. But at the same time, we do recognize, you know, since especially if you have little children or grandchildren, maybe you've got Christmas morning traditions, you can come and, and worship your Christmas service the, the night before, or maybe there's a family thing you need to be at on Christmas Eve, and you've always had to miss our Christmas Eve service. So, well, you'd be able to catch it Sunday morning. So, so that's how we're doing it this year. Two services, uh, mostly the, the kind of this Pick one or come to both if you'd like, Christmas Eve at 5 and then Christmas morning at 10.30 a.m. So that's what we're doing there. Um, we're looking at this passage this morning, so let's ask for the Lord's help with it, and then we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the children this morning, for the time in worship, for all of the gifts and everybody's efforts just to, to bring us to this point, Lord. Thank you so much, uh, most of all for you, for your grace and love for us, Lord. Uh, we would ask you to please help us now as we study your word together uh, help us to see, to understand. Uh, if any, any cloudiness in our brains or even in me, uh, please part the clouds so that we can understand with our minds and our hearts and um, apply it to our lives. That's what we would ask now. Your, your word is meant to change us, and so we pray you would change us, whether it's our minds or our affections or our actions, whatever it is that needs to be changed this morning, we invite you to do it. We ask all this, we pray it all in the, name of great, in the great name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Have you ever tried to give somebody a puppy on Christmas, like as a Christmas gift? Have you ever tried to give somebody a puppy? Um, I've never done it myself, but it's one of those things you, you'll see this time of year, right? It's like one of those, almost like a stereotype. You'll see it in movies sometimes. A lot of times they'll do it in commercials, you know, and there'll, there'll be, you know, this little scene, and it's Christmas morning, obviously, everybody's in their jammies, usually, in the, in the commercial, right? And, and someone, usually an, an adult, will hand a big box to... Uh, somebody else, often a child, all right, and they'll hand that child a, the box, and the child will take the top off the box, and out will jump a puppy, right? And yay, everybody's laughing and giggling, and it's this wonderful time as the puppy, surprise, jumps, jumps out of the box. Uh, well, like I say, we, we never did that. We, we certainly never tried to give a puppy uh, on a Christmas morning like that, but, but it seems to me that putting a puppy in a box is not as easy as they make it look. 
right? I mean, every puppy I've ever known is, is wiggly and squirmy and, and they're, they're moving around. And I mean, you can't get a puppy to sit down, you know, sit still for 10 seconds, let alone to sit quietly in a box for an hour while, while they wait to, to open the box. No, it, it seems to me that if you were to try to give someone a puppy in a box, that that puppy is going to bust out of that box, right? That's how puppies are. They're exuberant. He's going to burst out of that box the first uh, chance he gets. And I was thinking this week, the birth of Jesus has the same effect. It really does. If you, if you read through the nativity story in the Bible, especially in, in Luke and in Matthew, uh, one of the many things you see, one of the, the many details that strike us in Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus is that joy keeps bursting out of the box. It keeps bursting out. It's like a puppy. <laughs> they can't keep it inside. It's all over the place. You see it in Luke chapter 1 when uh, Mary and Elizabeth meet. Uh, they both um, ha- have their, their miracle babies inside of them, uh, and, and they go to, Mary goes to meet with Elizabeth, and, and as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the baby leaps, leaps for joy within her womb, she, she tells Mary. And, and when Mary hears this, Mary breaks forth in joy. And you have that beautiful uh, poem, prayer called the Magnificat. And, and she says, I rejoice, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, their, their interaction bursts with joy. Uh, you see it with the angels and the shepherds. One of the children read it for us actually before. I bring you good news of great joy the angel tells the shepherds. You see it with the wise men in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men uh, finally, you know, they go to Jerusalem first and then they they follow the star to Bethlehem and when they saw the star over the place where the child was, uh, they rejoiced greatly with great joy, it says in Matthew 2. And so joy is just busting out all over the place when you read through the nativity story. Uh, This month we're exploring this idea of of Jesus being God with us. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says uh, that the child born would be uh, Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And that's our theme this month as we're kind of preparing our own hearts for Christmas. We're talking about what it means to say that Jesus is God with us. And so uh, we've talked about hope and we've talked about love. Week one, we talked about hope. God with us brings hope to the world and to our lives. Last week, we talked about love. Jesus brings love to the world. He reveals God's love to us. This morning, I want to talk about joy. We're going to talk about joy. God with us also brings joy. Because Jesus was born, we have access to the joy that God wants us to have. And here's the thing. It's not just Christmas. It's not just uh, about Jesus the baby, right? And that's kind of one of the, that's really driving the passages I'm having us look at this month. Uh, It's not just that uh, there was joy when Jesus was born. It's that when you keep reading in the Gospels, Jesus keeps bringing joy. He keeps bringing joy to people's lives and joy to the world. He, He does it in the Gospels and his adult ministry. And more importantly for us, he keeps doing it today. He's still doing it for us today. He's still bringing joy. That's what what I'd like to look at. So I want to accomplish three things in the time we have this morning. Uh, First thing I want to do is I just want to tell the story. I just want to acquaint us with, tell the story of the miracle at the wedding at Cana. For many, it's perhaps a familiar story, but others are maybe hearing it for the first time. So I just want to make sure we we kind of see what Jesus did here. A second thing I want to do is I want to address two sticky issues. Uh, There are uh, two sticky issues in this passage. 
Um, my guess is uh, most of you here are kind of pondering at least one of these two issues, maybe both of them, when you listen to that uh, passage that was read to us a few minutes ago. And so I want to just answer those two questions. I want to make sure you leave with good answers to the two questions that this passage raises for us. So we'll, we'll address those two sticky issues. And then uh, at the end, I want to use the rest of the time we have to uh, answer a question about joy. Right? So we're talking about joy this morning. Well, I want to answer a question about joy. And, and the question is, what kind of joy are we talking about? So, so we say God with us brings joy. It's one of the base themes, the basic themes of, of Advent. But what, what do we mean when we say God brings joy into our lives? What sort of joy are we talking about? And that's what we'll, we'll catch at the end. So, uh, so let's do those three things. Let's get started. We'll, we'll start with the, the story. And our story begins with a wedding. Right? It's a wedding. It's a wedding day. So uh, chapter 2 of John, the Gospel of John. We're actually in one of the, each of the four Gospels each week. It felt real nice, so uh, we're showing you on all four Gospels. So this morning we're in John, John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So at the end of John chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, the, where we left off, we, we're not studying through it right now, but if we had, we would have left off here. Uh, Jesus had invited a man named Nathanael, who's one of the 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus had just invited Nathanael to be one of his disciples. And so we are very early. This is very, very early in his ministry. In fact, you can make the case that it's actually the first week. It's the first week of his public ministry. I think that's a good way to understand all of this. So very early on. Three days later, that's the three days, three days after this invitation to Nathanael to come be one of his disciples, uh, three days later, there's a wedding, and the wedding takes place in uh, Cana, we're told, and Cana, the things, here's a few things we need to know about Cana. Uh, Cana is a small village. It's a little place, even smaller than Nazareth, and I've told you before, Nazareth was a small village. Cana was even smaller, so we're talking maybe 100 people live in this place, maybe 200, uh, but the archaeological evidence is, is that it was a small village, even smaller than Nazareth. Uh, the other thing to know about Cana is that it's close to Nazareth, less than 10 miles away. It was somewhere either three or nine. There's two different places in Israel you can visit today where they're like, maybe this was Cana or maybe this one. Uh, they're both within 10 miles. They're both within 10 miles of, uh, of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And that's probably why, I mean, just kind of understanding the story here, this is a personal engagement here. Uh, Jesus and Mary knew the family. Right? They're, 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 in fact, some suggest they were, they were relatives. It would have made a lot of sense for them to be like cousins or second cousins, something like that. Or maybe even just, maybe just close friends. Right? But, but either way, uh, they're, they're well acquainted with. Uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, and then Jesus himself know the bride and the groom. And this probably helps us understand why Mary is so involved. Uh, Mary is very involved in this wedding. It's, it's either because she's close friends with the groom's family or else she, maybe they're even their family. It's quite possible they're family. And, and so she's engaged. She's helping with things. And that's what you see in verses three, uh, 3 through 5. Let's pick up in 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, comes to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary, reading between the lines here, Mary seems to be helping. Right? She's helping. That's how she knows 
that the wine has run out before pretty much everybody else, right? So this is kind of a, you know, almost this, if you're, if you're helping, you get to know stuff sooner than everybody else, right? And, and so she finds out that the wine has run out. And you need to know, we need to know that this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. It's, it's, it's actually hard for us to, to, to grasp how embarrassing this would be in their culture. In fact, it's worse than embarrassing. In their culture, it's actually shameful. Um, uh, it is a little, again, a little hard for us to... Ours is not a shame-based culture. Our culture doesn't operate that, where if somebody doesn't meet expectations, we shame them. Uh, maybe in the past we were, but it doesn't really work that way anymore in our culture. Um, this culture we're reading about here is a shame-based culture. There are certain uh, cultural expectations you're supposed to meet, and if you don't meet them, people will be talking about it for years. And this is one of them. The groom's family is the host. They're putting on this wedding, and they're supposed to provide for their guests. And if they don't provide for their guests, this is a, it brings shame to the family. People, like I say, people will be talking about it for years. And so there's a lot at stake socially in this little village for this family, for this groom's family. And, uh, and I should say, if I haven't already, that the groom's family, it's, it's their responsibility to put on the wedding. Kind of traditionally in our culture, it was always the bride's family. But, but in this culture, it's, it's the groom's family. They're the ones who sponsor, pay for, and put on the wedding party. So Mary, you need to know, Mary isn't just being a, a gossip or a busybody. Right? And you could read it that way. You know, oh, they have no wine. No, she, she's, she's trying to help. She's concerned for them. She's trying to help this groom and his family not fail their guests. And so what does she do? She finds out there's no wine, something, somebody planned wrong or something went wrong. And so she's, there's this problem. So she goes to Jesus. She goes to Jesus. Um, let's try to understand why she goes to Jesus. Uh, most scholars would say at this point that Joseph has died. Uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, has, has almost certainly died. Uh, we, we know Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12 years old, because the, the thing at the temple, where they leave him at the temple. Um, but then we never hear about Joseph again. He's disappeared from the scene by the time Jesus begins his, his adult ministry. So it seems pretty obvious Joseph is, is dead, which means Jesus is the head of the family. So why does Mary go to Jesus? Well, because he's the head of her family. He's her fixer, if I could put it that way. Uh, he's her fixer. When Mary, you know, it's a patriarchal culture, and I mean that in a neutral way. Um, she goes to the man in her life who helps her figure things out, and it's not her husband. He's deceased. It's her oldest son. It's Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus. Jesus, I'm, I've been helping with this wedding. Your, your second cousin, Joe, is getting, you know, whatever, is, is getting married here, and they've run out of wine, and they're out. They're out of wine, Jesus. She goes to him, and she, and she tells him this. Now, here's, this might surprise some of you. I don't think Mary has a plan. A lot of times we read this and we think, well, Mary, she goes to Jesus and she's expecting a miracle, right? So we'll use this as a story, you know, expect a miracle. I don't think Mary's expecting a miracle. I don't think she's expecting, I, I actually, I think she doesn't know what she wants Jesus to do. She's just going to the person who she goes to when she has problems like this. Why do I say that? I say that because John goes out of his way to tell us this is the first miracle Jesus ever did. This is the first miracle. He tells us so at the end of verse 11. And so it's not like Jesus has been doing miracles, you know, and she, you know, she's like, you know, Jesus, do the dishes. And he's like, the dishes are done. You know, he, he's never, he's never done that. Uh, he'd been waiting. And so 
there really, it, it doesn't make sense to think that she goes to Jesus expecting him to do what he's actually going to do. She just wants help. I mean, it's entirely possible she wants him to go take a collection and run out and buy some more wine. I mean, you know, we ought to go to another village and get... Like I say, we don't know what she wants him to do. She just goes to him. So that's verse 3. Mary then... uh, Jesus then responds to his mother. And his response is intriguing, right? Especially if I'm right that she's not necessarily expecting a miracle. Because instead of saying what a good son should say, instead of saying, well, I'll see what I can do, Mom, he says, not my problem. Right? I mean, it's kind of how it comes. If I, if I put it in the vernacular, he, he says, what does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with me that they've won out of, rhyme, out, out of wine? Now, we're going to come back to his response in a minute, because I think it's one of the tricky issues. But, but that's what he says to her. He says, it's not, uh, it's, not, it's not my problem. What does it have to do with me? Her response to that, I think, is equally surprising, because she seems to just ignore him. <laughs> he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything about it. And so she goes to the servants, do what he says to do. Uh, it, it really, it's, it's kind of this jarring sort of an exchange. And then the text doesn't say this, but I think I'm right. I think she leaves. I think she leaves because she disappears from the story. We don't hear about her anymore. And so I imagine she kind of bustles off to go try to help, right? To go, maybe she's going to go distract the guests from the, the absence of wine or something like that. I don't know. But, but Mary disappears from the narrative at, in verse 5. And so we keep going, let's keep going in the story here, uh, because again, somewhat to our surprise, a lot of little surprising elements in this story. Um, To our surprise, Jesus actually does something, right? So Mary comes and says, help. He says, I'm not going to, it's not my problem, I'm not going to do anything. And then he does something. So uh, let's read what he does, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. We'll stop there. We'll stop with verse 8. So six stone water jars, six stone water jars. And these water jars had a a specific purpose, right? So we need to understand what they're for. Um, Their purpose is to hold uh, water for purification. John tells us this. They were the, the jars for water of purification. Uh, Judaism has uh, lots of rituals that are focused on um, purifying people, ritual purification, religious purification. And, and so these were for that kind of washing. And maybe they had big ones because it was a wedding. Lots of people were there. But uh, basically every guest who came had to wash their hands and uh, not because of germs, but because of ritual impurity. The world is filled with sin, and you're touching things that are sinful, and so just because they exist, kind of, and, and so you've got to wash the sin off your hands before you eat. And so the, the, the jars are there for ritual washing. It's ritual washing. So, so that's what they're for. The other thing to know about these jars, I think I just mentioned it, it, it but it, it really helps to know that they're big. These are big jars. They're big. Each one holds between 20 and 30 gallons of water. I was thinking, if you think about the coolers we use here at the church, right? Those coolers we'll put out at, um, at church functions, and I guess we used them last week when we served hot chocolate down at the parade. We gave away 12 gallons of, uh, of hot chocolate. That was three coolers, right? So one of those coolers uh, holds about f- four to five gallons. These jars are six times bigger, right? So take one of those church coolers, six times bigger than that, and there's six of them, right? There's six of these water jars. So they're big. They're big, heavy jars, and they're, and they're heavy because they're made of stone. 
And stone was better for purification because stone doesn't absorb ritual impurity, or so, so, they, so they believed to be the case. And so large water jars. So Jesus points to these large water jars, and he says, fill them up. Fill the jars with water, he tells the servants. And so they, they, they do what he says to do, because Mary said, do what he says to do. So Mary said to fill the jars, so they fill the jars. Um, this probably takes some time. As you imagine this story, um, they don't have a hose, right? And, and they, we don't know where their water source was. Maybe they had to go out to a well. Maybe it was kind of something built there. We don't know. But either way, it's going to take some time to put all this water into all of these jars. And you get the impression Jesus is standing there. I, I think he's standing there, kind of urging them on. Or maybe he helped. Who knows? It doesn't say he did, but maybe he did. But, but he's there as they're filling the jars with water. And then the jars are full. And then he says, now take some out. And it's, it's instantaneous. There's no break in the text. I, sometimes, you know, when you try to picture this dramatically, I know there's been, you know, movies and shows and stuff, and, you know, the, Jesus will clear everybody out of the room. You know, he doesn't clear everybody out of the room. He says, fill the jars. He says, okay, good. Now take some out. Right? And, and we don't, you actually can't tell from this text when the miracle happens. Right? He says, they put it in. Then he says, now take some out. And he says, uh, bring it to the master of the house. So it's not, again, maybe they used a cup. Maybe it was a pitcher. Whatever they used, uh, they bring some to the, to the master of the feast. Jesus says, bring some now. Bring some of this, this liquid to the master of the feast. And this guy, he's actually an important character in this story. He's a really important character. Uh, he, he is in charge of the meal. The master of the feast is in charge of the meal. He's kind of like a caterer. In our setting today, you know, if you, if you put on a big event like that, there's a caterer who's, putting on, who's doing all the food. This master of the feast is kind of like the caterer, although throw in the DJ too, because he's also sort of an MC making sure everything works. So he's kind of like combination caterer-DJ running, running the whole show. And so he's responsible for the food. He's responsible for the wine. He keeps everything going. He kind of doles it out and so that it stretches and, and all the rest. And, and here's the other thing to know about this guy. He's probably a pro. This was such an important job in that culture that a lot of times these, these uh, feast masters, how would you like a business card that said that? Uh, feast master, a lot of times these feast masters, this was their job. They were professional uh, masters of the feast. So they bring this to this guy. Now here's the thing. You and I know what has happened. Right? We know what's happened. We, we heard the story before. Many of us have read it before. So we know what Jesus has done. But within the story, there's actually suspense. If you read the story on its own terms, when you get to the end of verse 8, as far as you and I know, these people are bringing this guy a cup of water. Because that's the last we heard about the liquids and the jars. Last, wine hasn't been mentioned since verse 3. The last time we heard about wine, there was none. Remember that? That's the last time the word wine is used, is, is in verse 3 when we're told we're all out. And ever since then, it's been water. Water jars, water, all the rest. Water, 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 water. So, so there's some suspense here. Why is Jesus sending these servants with a pitcher of water to the master of the feast? Why is he doing this? Well, we keep reading. We find out. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. 
So the servants bring him this beverage. Uh, they, they bring it to him, and, and John finally, now John tells us what Jesus did. He says, it's, he, look what he calls it. It's water now become wine. And so now we know, we know it's not water anymore. We know what Jesus did. He's made wine. The master of the feast takes a sip of this stuff, and his eyes go wide. Not because it's wine. He expected it to be wine. Right? He has no reason to think it's anything else. But this is really important. He, he's, he's amazed at this stuff, not because, oh, wow, you turned the water into wine. No, he's amazed at this stuff because how good it is. This isn't just wine. This is really, really good wine. That's why he's so amazed. And so he goes to the groom. That's what the bridegroom is. Don't be confused by that word. The bridegroom is the groom in our, our way of saying things. And so he goes and he finds the groom because the groom is the one who was supposed to provide the wine. And he says, you're amazing. You're amazing. Most people serve the good stuff first, but you, you saved the best for last. And that's the end of the story. That's how the story ends. There's a little theological synopsis in verse 11, but the story ends... The account of the miracle ends with the professional wine taster praising the quality of the wine that Jesus has miraculously produced. That's how the story ends. He praises the quality of the wine. Now, we're going to apply all that in just a couple of minutes. I want to talk about what that means for us today. But before we do that, let's, let's look at those two sticky issues I promised you, because I don't want you to go home with nagging questions about this text. So two sticky issues. Number one, uh, the first one has to do with uh, Jesus' choice of beverage. And it boils down to this. Why wine? Why wine? Now, for some of you this isn't a problem, but for some of you this is a problem with this text. You're wondering, why wine? Why not a nice, non-alcoholic sparkling cider? <laughs> Come on, Jesus. Can't, why not? Or some nice Gatorade, right, filled with vitamins and electrolytes. Why does he have to go with something so, so uh, controversial for some people? Why does he turn the water into wine? After all, and again, for some people this isn't an issue, but others it, it needs to be dealt with. Uh, after all, there are a fair number of warnings in the Bible about wine. And I'm not seeing a problem here where there is none. There's a bunch of warnings in the scripture about wine. Uh, we are not going to read through them all, but there's probably a dozen or so verses that sound a lot like this one. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. Strong drink is the word for... Um, so wine is made from, from fruits, uh, like pomegranate wine or uh, grape wine, obviously, is the most common one. Uh, the strong drink, if you ever see that word in English or in, in your Bibles, that's um, grain-based alcohols. That's your beer or your whiskey or so on. So wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Proverbs 20, verse 1. And like I say, there's probably a dozen or so verses like that in the Proverbs. There's some in the, in the different prophets. There's even some in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 20, I think it is, 518, 520, uh, do not be drunk with wine, right? For that is debauchery, Paul says. All right, so, so there's lots, a reasonable number of verses like that. And so we're asking, why would Jesus do that? Why would he turn water into, into something that the Bible sometimes warns against? Why would he turn water to wine? The answer to that question, if you have it, is that the warnings are only part of the story. The warnings are only part of what the Bible says about alcohol. Uh, yes, there are warnings, right? And I, I did want to make sure to say this. You know, there are warnings about addiction. There are warnings about drunkenness, warnings against uh, allowing ourselves to be controlled by alcohol. Uh, there are some of us who just need to stay away from this stuff. 
maybe because there's a family history, maybe because we ourselves have struggled with it. Um, and, and so please do not take this passage to kind of let it lead you into something that's dangerous for you. Um, that, those warnings are real. Those warnings are in the scriptures for, for a reason. But along with the warnings, there are lots and lots of passages that connect wine to joy. There's just way too many to ignore. There's lots of passages that connect wine to joy, where wine is either a source of joy or sometimes a symbol of joy. A source of joy or a symbol of joy. Psalm 104, verse 15, The Lord brings forth wine to gladden the hearts of men. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, uh, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. Uh, Isaiah 24, 11, There is an outcry. This one's an interesting one. Um, the absence of wine is a bad thing in this verse. So there's an outcry in the streets. God has brought judgment. And so there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Why? Because there's no wine. Isaiah 24, 11. Um, Zechariah chapter 10, verse 7. Uh, it's describing a, a, a looking forward to a time of restoration when the Lord brings restoration to Israel. It says, Then Ephraim, one of the tribes, shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it, see the Lord's work in their lives, and be glad their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. That last one, that Zechariah 10 one, is, is especially interesting because it's not just talking about wine as kind of um, ordinary joy, like you know, the ordinary pleasure of drinking it. It actually uses wine to describe spiritual joy, the joy of the Lord, right? And so it says joy in the Lord is like the joy of, of wine, and that's Zechariah 10, verse 7. So why does Jesus turn water into wine? Well, the answer is that wine is a symbol of joy. Right? So he's not advocating drunkenness or blessing drunkenness by no, no stretch. In fact, you should know uh, the, the wine they drank then was generally, was almost always diluted. In fact, there are verses that talk about drinking wine the way we drink it, which would be not so good. Uh, you're supposed to, it was always diluted. Usually three to one would be the ratio, so three parts water to every one part wine. So, so again, he's not giving them something dangerous. But, but why wine? Wine is a symbol of joy. In the Bible, wine very often is a symbol of joy. And that makes so much sense when you look at what this passage is all about. The whole thing, it, right? It's like a puppy in a box, right? You can't contain the joy of this situation. You've got a wedding, right? So this couple who's been engaged for probably the better part of a year, now they get to be, to be married, and so they're excited and filled with joy. Their guests are filled with joy. There's a celebration that's a joyful celebration. Sometimes we don't know with this one, but sometimes these wedding celebrations would go on as long as a week. Right? I mean, the whole thing is filled with joy. Of course he turns water to wine. Right? It's, it's joy. The whole thing is about joy. The whole story is about joy. So that's sticky issue one, uh, number one. Don't, don't be troubled by him turning water to wine. Uh, wine is a symbol of joy. The other tricky issue here has to do with this exchange between Mary and, and Jesus. And so when you read this, it's just like, why are they, why are they talking to each other this way? It, it, it seems confusing. And I'm going to, let me just say this up front, and then I'll explain how, how it unfolds. Um, this is an instance of where John, John will a lot of times tell his stories, and John's the only one who gives us this miracle. John will tell his stories in a way that emphasizes the spiritual reality behind them. And so you'll see kind of what happened. He never, he doesn't tell us things that didn't happen, but he'll tell us the things that happened in a way that emphasizes the spiritual 
uh, the spiritual stuff going on behind the scenes. So, so I, and I think that helps us understand. So verses four and five, Mary comes to Jesus. She says they have no wine. Uh, again, it's not entirely clear what she expects him to do, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she doesn't expect what he says, right? And, and because what he says is surprising. First of all, he seems to be rude to her. He addresses her as woman. Woman, he says. And, and if, you know, if, if you try calling your mom woman, uh, better yet, don't. <laughs> better yet, don't. Uh, we, we hear that and we're like, that is not the way you usually address your, your mother. It helps to know, you know and that's to English ears, it, it helps to know that when he says it, the way he says it, it's actually closer to something like ma'am. Right, you know, like, like you know, especially in Southern culture or older, you know, previous generations, you know, old, a woman of a certain age would be ma'am. You'd call her ma'am. Um, it, when he says woman, it's closer to that. So it's not disrespectful the way it sounds to us when he calls her woman. It, 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 it is respectful, but that doesn't completely solve the problem for us because it's still pretty formal. Right? There, it, it's actually what he's doing is he's making some distance. Right? It, it is not a warm address to call her woman, to call her ma'am. It, is not, it doesn't have the warmth you would expect between a mother and a son, especially if that son is Jesus. Right? It's, it doesn't have the warmth. And so, it, it, and, and what I think's going on here is that, because it, it looks like he's trying to distance himself from her, because he is. I think that's what you have to understand here. Uh, because that is what he says. So he addresses her woman, and then he says, what does this have to do with me? And so she comes with this issue, and maybe for the last you know, 15 years since Joseph died, he's been her fixer, but now he says, no, no, I, th- what does this have to do between you and me, is actually what it literally says in Greek. What is this between you and me? What, what does this problem have to do with me? This was almost certainly a difficult thing for Mary to hear. Right, put yourself in her spot. This was probably hard to hear, because what he's basically saying, so this is where John is layering things, what he's basically telling his mom is, you don't get to control my ministry. Yeah, you were there when I was miraculously conceived. You were there when I was born. You, you know, you, you, you've been there more than anyone's been there. But even you don't get to control when I'm going to do things, what I'm going to do, and when I'm going to do them. Not even you, Mary, get to do that. And so what John is doing, it's only chapter 2, what John is doing is he's introducing us to a theme he's going to actually hammer as the book keeps going. And it's, what's the theme? The theme is that Jesus doesn't do the will of anybody except his Father. He doesn't do his disciples' will. He doesn't do uh, his own will. He doesn't do even his mother's will. He only does the will of the Father. And he'll say that many times. All that, you actually see it in all the Gospels, but John emphasizes it more than the others. I have come, Jesus says numerous times, to do the will of my Father and no one else's. And so what he's doing in verse 4 is he's telling Mary, you don't get to tell me when I start doing things. And like I say, it's not even clear if she was asking, but he's, he's using that now to launch the, to launch the ministry. So, so he tells her that. You're not going to control this. Mary responds, and like I say, it's an odd response because it seems like she doesn't even engage with him, right? It, she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And it sounds like, I don't know, it seems to me, when I just read it on a quick read-through, it feels like she's ignoring him. But I, I want to submit to you that she's not ignoring him. She's not manipulating him. 
I've seen some kind of play it that way. You know, oh, she's just kind of doing the mom thing. You know, she's going to use some mom pressure here to, you know, she basically just ignores him, you know, uh, you know, just do what he says, you know. So she's kind of pulling the mom card. I do not think that's what's going on here with Mary. I think Mary is submitting to Jesus in verse 5. I, I think that's the way to read it. So in verse 3, she appeals as his mother. In verse 5, she submits as a disciple. Verse 3 is maternal pressure. Verse 5 is faith. It's a heart of faith. Why do I say that? I say that because verse 5, boy, print it out on a, you know, quilt it and put it up on your wall. Verse 5 is what a disciple does. What's the life of a disciple? The life of a disciple is to do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So I don't think she's being rude to Jesus. I think she's submitting to Jesus. She's released the need to him. I think she did come with some maternal expectations in verse 3. But, but when she hears what he says... I think she turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says. Maybe he'll say, don't do anything, and the whole thing's going to blow up and the family will be embarrassed, but if that's what he says, that's what we're going to go with. Do whatever he tells you. So that's how I understand verses 3, 4, and 5. You can find other interpretations of that, but that's how I resolve the tension there and that relationship between those two. Uh, it's, they're not being rude to each other. They're not, he's not being harsh with his mother. Uh, nor is she being demanding. I think she's being a faithful disciple and he's being, he's being the savior. He's being who he is. So let's bring it all home now. Uh, God, uh, God with us brings joy, right? That's what we've been talking about this series. What, what's, you know, hope, love, now joy. Uh, he brings joy. But what do we know about this joy? What are we talking about? What sort of joy does Jesus bring? The presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel, what kind of joy does he bring? Well, I, I think this story, something that happened 30 years after he was born, I think this story helps us understand, helps us answer that question. I see three answers here. What kind of joy? First, surpassing joy. Jesus brings for us, to the world and for us, he brings surpassing joy. The joy Jesus offers transcends, it surpasses the merely ordinary joys. And they're wonderful too, but his joy surpasses the ordinary joys that this world has to offer. So this is important. When we talk about joy in the church, when we talk about the joy of the Lord, we are not talking about being optimistic. Right? We're not talking about merely thinking positive. You know, think positive. Anybody can do that. Right? There's, it's actually very popular these days. There's all kinds of power, you know, TED Talks and positive thinking gurus out there. There's all kinds of people who will tell you, just think positive and look on the bright side and meditate. And, you know, I mean, even, even pagans can enjoy a beautiful sunset. Right? You, 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 that's not what we're talking about. When, when the Bible talks about joy, when you look at the joy you see here, it's not talking about ordinary joy. It's talking about extraordinary joy, a joy that surpasses the, the mere joys of, of this world. Where do I get that from this text? Here's where I get it. I get it in the fact that the wine runs out. The wine at the wedding runs out. The people at this wedding feast did not get to experience the joy that Jesus provided. They don't get to experience his wine until they come to the end of their own wine first. Their wine had to run out before they get to experience the joy that Jesus has to offer. And so the takeaway for us is that the Lord's joy, our joy, the joy of the Lord, does not depend on our circumstances. It transcends our circumstances. 
It transcends them. Why? Because the, the wine of this world runs out. Right? The wine, I don't mean to make this allegorical, but John tends to write that way. The wine of this world runs out. There it is, verse 2 and 3, or verses 1 and 2. No, it's verse 3. Verse 3, the, war, the wine of this world runs out. The new relationship, the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, it loses its shine. The new car gets scratched. The new job gets boring. The new phone gets cracked. There's a limit. There's an expiration date to the, even the best joys that this world has to offer. But the joy Jesus offers never runs out. His joy is surpassing joy. That brings us to the second thing. The second thing this shows us about his joy, the joy he offers, is that it is satisfying. This story shows us how God offers us, Jesus offers us satisfying joy. There were six stone jars, right? We acquainted ourselves with them a little bit before. Six stone jars, each jar holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Let's split the difference and call it 25. It makes the math easier. Six jars, each holding 25 gallons. So 25 gallons times six is 150 gallons. That's what Jesus gives them, 150 gallons of wine. I don't know a lot about wine, but that sounds like a lot of wine to me. It really does. That's a lot of wine. Because remember, this is a small village. We're not talking about throwing a wedding for 2,000 people in Jerusalem, you know, some huge reception. We're talking about 100 guests, maybe 200 guests from the surrounding villages. And Jesus gives them 150 gallons of wine. It, it reminds me of the story we looked at last week with the, with the fish and the loaves. Right? He feeds 15,000 people in this miraculous way. And remember what they had? Leftovers. I'll bet you they had leftover wine. There was more wine than they knew what to do with. And this, this idea of overflowing satisfaction is reinforced by how the whole thing is described. They fill the jars to the brim. It probably would have been enough to just stop at three quarters. Uh, probably could have stopped there. That probably would have been enough. But no, not with Jesus. Jesus says, fill them all the way to the top. Fill it all the way to the brim. And so what do you have? You have a picture of satisfaction. It's satisfaction. Jesus didn't make just enough to get them through. He made more than enough. He made more than enough. And that's how his joy is. His joy is a satisfying joy. Uh, the joys of the world come up short. right? They, they, they satisfy, but then they run out. right? Just like that wine. But his joy is satisfying. And that leads to the last one, the third one. The third thing we learn about joy is that his joy is, is therefore superior. The joy we're offered in Christ is superior joy. We see this with that guy I said is so important, the master of the feast. Uh, the master of the feast is amazed. And he, he reminds us, the reader, he reminds us that the standard practice is to serve the good stuff first. We would do the same thing. You serve the best stuff first so your guests are impressed. And then after they've been there for a while, maybe they've drunk a little bit, maybe they're getting a little off their game, maybe they're getting tired, then you bring out the cheaper stuff, right? When nobody will notice the difference. By the way, there's every reason to believe that's what this groom did, right? There's, we're not told he didn't. He did the same thing. The, the master of the feast doesn't know he did, but he did the same thing. The groom's family had already long since served the best they had to offer. And the master of the feast had tasted it. He had tasted the best wine this family had to offer, the groom's family had to offer. He'd already tasted it. But then the Jesus wine comes out, and he tastes it. The professional wine taster tastes it, and he says, wow. Where'd this come from? This is the best wine yet. And the symbolism of what he's saying, it's, it's obvious. Uh, you don't even need me for this part, right? The, the wine Jesus brings is better. 
The, the, the Jesus wine is just straight up better. That's the whole point, right? This isn't the groom's mom saying, oh, this is the better wine, you know. Of course his mom's going to say it. No, this is the, 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 the guy whose job it is to evaluate wines. He's the one who's saying that the Jesus wine is better. And so if wine stands for joy, if I'm right about that, and I think I am, if wine stands for joy in this passage, then this passage is saying that the joy of Jesus, the joy he provides, is objectively better. It's objectively better, and that part's important. Again, it's not, the claim here isn't, if you value Jesus, Jesus will seem better. But if you value golf, golf will seem better. No, it's not making a subjective claim. Jesus is better to the people who thinks he's better. No, it's an objective claim. Whether you agree or not, his wine is better. The expert says his wine is better. It's an objective claim. The Jesus wine is objectively better. And so what's the claim? Jesus, joy in Jesus is better than whatever this world has to offer us. Joy in Jesus is better than sexual exploration. Joy in Jesus is better than having lots of money. Joy in Jesus is better than the very best foods, the very best vacations. Joy in Jesus is better than a family legacy. Joy in Jesus is better than fame or acclaim or honor or success or prestige. Whatever you might add to the list, joy in Jesus is just straight up objectively better. That's what Emmanuel is born to bring. That's what we see in this story. He was born to bring a better, superior joy. I want to close with one last observation uh, about, about this story. When John tells this story, you can tell it, you can just, you've, you've, we've just spent half an hour with it a little more. Uh, when he tells this story, he goes out of his way to give the impression that most of the people there don't know what happened. Most of the guests do not know what Jesus has done. Uh, I mean, the master of the feast doesn't know. If anybody should know that there's a switch been made here, it's this guy. He should know what has happened, but even he doesn't know where the Jesus wine came from. So the master of the feast doesn't know. I don't think Mary knows. I'm sure somebody told her later, but again, she disappeared from the story. So when wine comes out, I'm sure she was relieved. Oh good, Jesus did something, but she doesn't know yet what he did. The bride and the groom don't know. They're way too busy. Anyone who's ever been at a wedding you know, knows that. If you've gotten married, you know that. You don't have time. So, so the bride and the groom don't know. Nobody knows, except for two groups. There are two groups of people who know what Jesus has done. The first is the servants. The servants. I love the servants in this passage. They never talk. They never say anything. All they do is they do what Jesus says. That's, what the, that's the servants. They do what Jesus says. They get to know. Verse 9, the master of the feast didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Uh, there's an old preacher named Donald Barnhouse wrote a commentary on John I like to look at. A uh, hundred years ago, Barnhouse said, I'd rather be a servant and know where the wine came from than to be governor of the feast and not know where it came from. I love that. I'd rather be a servant and know where the wine came from than the governor of the feast and not know. I'd rather be a servant who knows the joy of the Lord than a king who does not. The other group that knows what happened, it's the disciples. And it's, it's how the passage ends. It's the formal ending of the passage. Uh, John tells us in verse 11, his, his disciples, and it's only about five or six of them at this point. That's how early it is. Those men saw what Jesus did and they believed. They saw, so they knew. They saw the sign. They saw his glory. They saw the joy. They saw what he was offering, and they believed. 
And my prayer for myself and for you this Christmas is that we will do the same, that seeing his joy, we will believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the joy that you offer to us uh, in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, uh, for uh, sending Jesus to this world uh, to offer us better wine, uh, better wine than the, the mere pleasures of this world. We thank you for them. They're a gift from you too. Scripture says that in many places. Uh, but in the end, the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate joy is you, knowing you, being known by you, receiving forgiveness, being in relationship with you. All of that is a package. It's so superior, so much better. And we thank you for it, Lord. I pray for myself and each of us here that you would help us to walk in your joy, to embrace it, to, and uh, to really just to walk in it this, in this next week and these next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas especially. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.